I'm alive. You're alive. I'm alive. We're we're alive but late. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it was my fault. And I, I want to apologize. Hi. Um, I'm Abby and I survived COVID. What's up? <laughs> I hate that for you. I know. I mean, I like, sick. I like that for you because I'm like glad that you live. Yes. But I hate that I for you because I'm like, I hate that you got sick. Yes. It sucks. Um, I lost my taste. I lost my smell. Uh, I was tired all the time. Uh, good news is, though, I started my job up again. Yay! So, nice. So there's there's the downer. There's the upper. Um, and then uh, the middle ground is my test came back negative. So even though I had it, it's okay. It's all right. We're we're surviving. We're fine. It's fine. Um, Everything's fine. Yeah. Stay inside. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Six feet apart. Do the thing. And you're probably wondering why we're talking about this. But for those of you who don't know why we're here, you're hi, listening to a podcast. Files. Yeah, you're listening to a podcast called Herlock Files. Hello, Hello. welcome. And this is our much delayed episode, but we're going to have some fun stuff to talk about. Exactly. And Abby introduced herself, but I'm Zoe or Little Red, and Abby is normally known as Yebba Debba. True. Um, but yeah, this is our this is our true crime and gaming podcast. And our numbered episode. I think this is eight. It might I be. Eight. Say it's eight. Uh, it is episode eight. You're right. You got yes. it. Ding, ling, ling. Eight is great. And despite it being August, uh, this is actually our July episode, just a few weeks late. Yep. Which is understandable with everything going on in the world. Yes. We picked a fairly topical topic this time around. Yes, we did. Would you like to tell them? Yeah, we picked pandemics. We're just leaning. We're just leaning in epidemics. Yeah, which are all three different things, which I learned are all three different. uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Ways to categorize these types of outbreaks. So. Outbreaks. Outbreaks is a good word. Outbreaks is a very good word. Yeah, so so um, we decided to lean into it. I think a few, one or two episodes ago, we talked about how at the time it didn't feel right to discuss, like, a pandemic when everyone was freaking out and buying copious amounts of toilet paper. Um, But now, (laughs) it's, you know, it's not over. Uh... (laughs) It's also kind of important because I think if we can also learn from past instances um, of it and also know kind of how, even though these feel like really weird times, it's also something that does happen quite often. Yes. Um, And it is something that, you know, we can contain. It's something that we're actively working towards for a vaccine like we have done in the past. It's why we have flu shots. It's why we have, you know, polio vaccines. It's why we have smallpox smallpox vaccines it's why we have global initiatives so you know on top of them being uh fascinating in terms of from a scientific and a a societal point of view um i think it's also a good time to also turn it in a positive light in that uh we can get through this yeah and it's normalizing the situation and also talk about video games (laughs) and also talk about video games well, I think it breaks down to like a, we see we can also see these 
we can see these things in pop culture and like it's often found in like horror games or horror movies or you know like political television shows like or even like horror crime television shows like it's something that i think we're very conscious of we we know that it's happened in the past um we know ways of hopefully dealing with it for the future um and yes it can be you know a little daunting at times but we can learn from like yeah we said we can learn from the past situations and hopefully that'll help us with future issues um so we're gonna lean right into discussing some of those topics not necessarily covid but like i stayed i stayed specifically away from the flu because you know it left a bad taste in my mouth uh, recently, <laughs> or no taste in this instance, but yes. Um, so I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to talk about something different, but still interesting. And I tried to keep it more fun while also talking about like outbreaks. Not necessarily. We did start out with pandemics, but my pa- my my actual pandemic is more hypothetical and and fictional, and then the reality of the situation is a little less severe. Um, so that's usually a nice, a nice way to start. Um, is through the adaptability of getting through a lot of trauma and coming out ahead and making progress in, against something that doesn't seem like you would ever make progress against it. So, yeah. And also if you hear any thuds in the background, that is my lovely upstairs neighbor. Ooh. Who doesn't understand the concept. Of being light-footed. <laughs> we just we just got over uh, all those crazy storms. Oh, you know, the storm of the century that just had to happen in Chicago in 2019. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. August. No, I, I'm fully, like, there was one night that I thought, like, my upstairs neighbor was actually committing a murder. Oh, um, God. There, well, there was just, there wasn't, like, screaming. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of, like, thuds and shuffling. Like and I'm like, being moved. yeah, and I'm like, you can't, it's like, I guess during the day you'd be like, this person's, you know, renovating their kitchen or building furniture or something. Right. Although I don't know how you would renovate a kitchen in an apartment complex. Like you don't own it. No, but, yeah, it'd be dumb. You're doing the landlord's job for them. Exactly. <laughs> but, but it was like 1145 at night. Oh, and I'm no, like, how, what are you do? What are you doing up there? It was like a lot of like weird sounds that like were too loud and also very sus. And um, I, I'm like, I think there's a murder being committed. <laughs> and else every else now and then, I'll jump to exactly. And every now and then, there'll be like an extra thud that I'm like, I don't, I don't know why that needs to be happening. I don't know what you're doing that requires that sound effect but sure there can only be a certain number of bodies upstairs in order to make those kind of noises well hopefully one day i'll actually have a story to share but for now i'm gonna be talking about the last of us very nice very nice i'm curious to know this because i know the game and i know the franchise i know it's very very beloved but i don't have a playstation so i have not played it yet whoa i i I mean I'll try not to spoil it too much. <laughs> uh, I've seen plenty of game throughs through a couple different people, so yeah, you're, I mean, good. it's definitely it's definitely a hot topic now that the uh, part two came out recently, 
and yep. um you know i finished it uh i cried a lot like a, a, a way more than i thought i would um, seems to be the consensus yeah i don't cry like during video games oh i'm a weeping willow that's and how the only the only one that's gotten me before is god of war Ooh, and that, then, that was a beautiful ending. And I teared up, like I or I didn't tear up. I did cry, like at like actually cry at the end. Yeah. But yeah. this this sequel is the first one that actually made me sob on stream, and then ha- made me cry several times after. So like I just it just you know it's just incredible. We don't need to draining. emotionally draining, but we don't need to get yeah. into that. I'm going to more <laughs> so focus on the first one, um, or not even the first one, but just uh, I'm going to focus on the infected, um, cool. because that is where the interesting part is slash what we're talking about today. Um, I'm not going to like break down the full story and give you guys spoilers or anything like that, but we're just going to talk about high level information so that we can get into the the fun guy of it all. Um, (laughs) So The Last of Us came out in 2013. Uh, It was developed by Naughty Dog and published uh, under Sony Entertainment. So it is an action adventure. That is me messing with my headphones so I can hear myself. Uh, It is an action adventure survival horror game uh, based in an apocalyptic world, obviously. Uh, so this apocalyptic world was due to an outbreak of mutant cordyceps who ravaged the U.S., transforming their human hosts into aggressive creatures called infected. And most people who have played the game know the story of Joel and Ellie, uh, especially with the sequel, like I said, having just come out. But an overview of that is that Joel was given a job, uh, to deliver Ellie to the group called the Fireflies, um, who are known as like a, a militia, like a separate factor. A lot of a lot of groups when the when outbreak day after outbreak day happened, a lot of like groups broke off and like you know created their own little like cults and militias and factions and stuff. Um, if they didn't want to be under Fedra, which was like the government, uh, and so. Joel was a smuggler, and he was given a job to deliver Ellie to the Fireflies. Um, Ellie had been bitten or infected and did not show any symptoms, nor did she turn, so thus they theorized that she was both immune and a help in finding the cure to kind of, like, stop what was happening in the world. Which the Fireflies... Right, which the Fireflies were studying. Um, so, in regards to our theme of pandemics, we're gonna talk about fungus! 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 Um, fun, most fun guys to party with. There you go. See, I'm not the only pun one here. I try my best. Mine aren't (laughs) always good, but I certainly try. I don't, I wouldn't say that mine are good. (laughs) Does a pun have to be good to be said? I don't think so. Accurate. So cordyceps, um, they're actually a genus of um, Ascomyces. 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 I'm. I just want to forewarning. I am going to be saying a lot of scientific words very inaccurately throughout this entire endeavor. Like there are so many big words in this. I'm going to try my best. Um, 
scientists don't come for me. I, I believe in you and I, I, I'm sorry. Um, but they are a genus of ascomycete fungi that includes roughly 400 species. Uh, most are endoparasitoids, which um, in evolutionary ecology, a parasitoid is an organism that lives in close association with its host at the host's expense, so eventually resulting in the death of the host, and are mainly parasitic on insects and other arthropods, and then few are parasitic on like other fungi. So when a cordyceps fungi or a cordyceps fungus attacks a host, uh, the mycelium invades and eventually replaces the host's tissue. Uh, while the elongated fruit body, which is called an ascopart, uh, may be like a cylindrical branch or a complex of shapes, the ascopart bears many small flask-shaped erythesia, go with that, right, containing yeah. acai. Um, these, in turn, contain thread-like ascopores, ascopores. Ascospores, ascospores, which usually break into fragments and are presumably in infective. So basically, what all of that scientific jargon means is that um, the cordyceps attack the host and then their like mycelium invades that species and replace the host's tissue with its like own tissue. It's not really tissue, but it's like it's like fungus body. And then um Part of its fungus body are these weird, like, elongated tubes that will then, like, grow out of the host, um, which is how you can, like, tell if, like, an insect has been taken over by this fungus is because they'll have these weird, like, antenna-like fungus flask things poking out of its body. And those, the things that poke out, actually contain, um, like what can infect other beings like it, it hmm? contaminant yeah it's definitely a contaminant so it's it, it can break off and then infect other things Ooh. yeah so the cordyceps found in the last of us would be a mutated strain of course that would be able to affect humans because as of right now cordyceps cannot affect humans like they do insects Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Yo, but like actually. Um, so they jump from their typical host to host a human, presumably the same way uh, diseases like swine flu um, and maybe even COVID now uh, have done. So going from their most common host to a new host at, uh, through a mutation. However, um, an article in the game, like an, a fake news article in the game, states that the cause of the infection actually could have been from tainted crops that were imported. So there's not, like, a definitive, like, you know, it's one of those, like, environmental storytelling, like, gotta look for it. There's not really, like, a definitive, this is how the outbreak happened, but this is, like, how the outbreak supposedly happened. Could that be kind of, like, uh, alluding to bioterrorism, of seeing, like, somebody could have made something in order for it to be that infectious and that awful? It was actually alluding to pesticides and like antifungal um, treatment of crops and trying to prevent 
fungus from growing on food products, you actually then make a strand that's immune to that, and then and then latches onto the crops. And then once they were imported and spread and ingested, they got a ton of people sick. So yeah, Ah. Mm -hmm. which is also a possibility. Um, We'll get to that. So. Uh, This unidentified species turns the humans into violent infected and later into a blind clicker. The fungus grows while the host is still alive, with the host undergoing four stages of infection. Stage one begins with two days of infection where the host loses their higher brain function and with it their humanity, rendering them hyper-aggressive and incapable of reason or rational thought. This can also be seen through environmental storytelling in both the first game and the second game through notes that you find from people that have been infected saying that they're like going crazy and they're losing their mind and they can't think straight and like oftentimes like that's when like you'll find someone has like killed themselves because like they can tell what's coming so they're still somewhat coherent yeah a little bit yeah enough to like right before they fully turn then yes they're a little bit coherent but they're definitely like losing their senses uh, within two weeks, the host enters stage two of the infection, wherein the fungus begins altering their sight as a result of progressing fungal growth over their head and corruption of their visual cortex. After a year of infection, the fungal—I lost my place—infection mm-hmm. enters. After a year, infection enters stage three which scarring their face and blinding them, resulting in them developing the primitive forms of echolocation to compensate. And that's where you get your clickers. So that's when they're like fully blind. They have no face. They have all the fungus and mushrooms like growing out of their face. And they're, they start to use echolocation um, to compensate that loss of sight. In very rare cases, if the host survives for over a decade, they reach stage four. They develop hardened fungal plates over most of their body, and when the fungus kills the host, the host body grows stalk-like fungal projections, which release infectious spores. So now, obviously, this is where, like, the game takes some liberties, right? Because they have, like, the big, the big dude, the boomer dude, and then um, in the sequel, they had stalkers and shamblers and the infamous Rat King. Um... So those were, like, just, I I think, play on scenarios of, like, you know, this one's more aggressive or this one had a higher, like, fungal reaction. I mean, keeping to the fact that they needed different types of villains to fight, that's not really scientifically explained. But it's all under the same sense of, like, the fungus has, like, clearly altered their appearance um has you know i think the the shambler like gives off acid which is like not part of the cordyceps at all but like again creative liberties Mm -hmm. um but the infection can also be spread through bites from the living host which is why it gets such like zombie-ish uh factor uh but Hosts can be can only be infected while alive, as the fungus is unable to infect dead bodies due to its parasitic nature. Uh, dead infected can release spores regardless of the stage. So, 
That's another thing that's in the game is that you can't breathe in spores. If you breathe in the spores, you also get infected, which is how cordyceps spread themselves around as well. They don't only infect hosts. They also spread it through spores, which are then like infested. Um, So that's something that's, you know, scientifically accurate as well. Um, So yada yada, spores bad, create zombaboos. Don't ingest little floaty fungal death mites. Got it. Correct. Um, The game draws even more inspiration from science than just the name of the fungus, because once a clicker completes its cycle, the fungus forces the human into a dark and secluded corner. That is where the human finally dies. Bleeding back into the environment, the spores uh, F used from the corpse to infect again. So that's why, like, in environments in The Last of Us, you'll find, like, weird corners of, like, walls and stuff just completely covered in fungus. And that's where humans have actually gone and dropped dead and just have become one with their environment. And the the fungus has just grown over the surface and has released spores into the air. So all of this is, like, super backed up. Um, And it's really cool how, like, scientifically involved the last of us is with like cordyceps information research yeah they actually did their research and they used Mm -hmm. it creatively and i applaud them for that uh a few species of cordyceps have medicinal value one of these fungi cordyceps subsessilis subsessilis has been used to derive immunosuppressive drugs used in organ transplants, and um, some species of cordyceps are indeed body snatchers, though. And yeah. that is the most like common thought of when you think of cordyceps is the fact that they're body snatchers. Mm-hmm. The most cited investor, not investor, but investor, is the Ophiocordyceps unilateris previously known as a cordyceps unilateris, famously used, uh, or famously seen in the, like, UK Planet Earth video. That's where everyone knows them from. But um, it's, they, it attacks a specific species of ant uh, to complete its life cycle. So to live, it must zombify an ant. So it actually, like, makes the ant an actual zombie which is why this is the main inspiration to the last of us and their quote zombies which they actually don't like being called zombies they only like being called infected because zombies are undead and the humans in the last of us are not dead yet so yeah what's worse (laughs) right you're like, oh, maybe I want them to be dead. Yeah, that maybe sounds... I just want to be the living dead. I'll, I'll take that. that I know bad. that's an oxymoron, but, you know. Fair. Reanimated <laughs> dead. Reanimated. Right. Um, so the consuming fungus forces an ant to get a death grip on the underside of a leaf, a position prime for the fungus's transmission. The poor infected insect, once adorned with a harmless-looking spore, then has its tissue slowly eaten and replaced. All that remains of the ant at this point is the exoskeleton, which is a husk. A deceased ant, if there was one, save for the spiral including bodies of the fungus now protruding from the ant's head and body, these bodies burst forth from the ant, eventually releasing spores ready to begin the cycle anew. 
So a lot of this would be like the ant actually makes its way back to the colony. And so that when it dies from the fungus, the fungus is then able to release the spores upon the entire colony and take them out widespread. That's pretty um, gnarly. Although sometimes the ants don't make it back in time because they get overtaken. Uh, other species of cordyceps are just as transforming, even if they don't turn the host into a faithful undead servant. Cordyceps uh, ignata infects tarantulas, which I am, I am, I am all for this. Like, give give cordyceps ignata a trophy, a crown, a, a, an award. Like, I'm all for this. Uh, its spores burrow into the spider, extending a legion of wispy fingers, collecting a collectively known as mycelium throughout the body. So that's what we talked about before. Word, out of all of your scientific words, that is one that I did know. Mycelium. <laughs> mycelium. mycelium. Uh, the fingers are how the fungus grows and how the spider dies. Once the tarantula's insides are replaced with all of the fungus, uh, fruiting bodies again burst forth and spread their spores. So I'm all for that one. Death to tarantulas. <laughs> it's terrifying. Animal crossing. <laughs> so scary. They are scary. They're so terrifying. I didn't think that I'd be like afraid of them in Animal Crossing, but man, fear. <laughs> they come out of nowhere. Yeah. I the the the, the villager that I currently and still hate. Um was like playing with it i i don't know it was like petting it or something no. it was playing with it and then i ran past and it started to run after me and i blame that villager to this day so Good. um they move away <laughs> they won't <laughs> leave um <laughs> without an actual species to pin the apocalypse on the last of us uses a clever combination of all cordyceps attributes so like the ant infector, the fungus that brings down humanity turns a host into a drone to eventually do its bidding. And like the species of cordyceps that turn tarantulas into art, quote unquote, the fictional fungus creates elaborate sprouting bodies off of the host. So, however, it's interesting to note that it did not draw any inspiration from the zombie cicada. And yes, it is called a zombie cicada. <laughs> So, a parasitic fungi infecting cicadas is a thing that exists, and it happens periodically. Uh, the infection looks absolutely gruesome, with large portions of the cicada's abdomen replaced with fungal spores. However, right. the cicadas continue on as usual, seemingly not noticing that a part of their body is missing. And the fungus, called Massaspora, found in the cicadas, contains similar chemicals to those in hallucinogenic mushrooms. So this is not cordyceps. This is completely, this is a different fungus that uh, just makes cicadas really, really high. Uh, Psychedelic hands are high. Yeah. Wow. Psychedelically makes you high and um, also eats part of your body. Great. Yeah, and once the fungus actually takes over, uh, the cicadas lose their limbs and parts of their body are totally eaten away. And while harmless to humans, the zombie cicada are a threat to each other. 
because the males become infected and are capable of flying around and continuing to spread the fungus to other cicadas. Because again, they're acting totally normal. They're just tripping. <laughs> and the fungus actually causes the males to flick their wings to make a, uh, the familiar cicada humming sound. And that is typically only made by females. So the oh. flicking then attracts other males as they think it's a female making a mating call. And that thus spreads the fungus to even more male cicadas. And certain cicadas spend years underground where they encounter this fungus. And then once they arise, the fungus begins eating away at their body and spreading. So the diseased male will also attempt to copulate with the uninfected females, exposing them to even more spores. And Yukon's research team said in a statement that the infection results in the insect's abdomen becoming distended as if uh, it is filled with powdery white fungal spores, eventually to the point of bursting open or falling apart altogether. So it literally just like explodes them from the inside. But they're high the whole time, so they're okay with it. Yeah, they're just they're they're seeing colors and peace symbols and seventies music. It's just schoolhouse rock to them all day long. It's fine. But I did think that that was really funny because um, while it's not directly related to The Last of Us in terms of inspiration, it is another form of zombie fungus. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, um, one of the, like, I don't know, filler episodes of 2020 was that um, this was going to be the year that, like, a million cicadas rose. Like, they've been yep. underground and it's time for them to come forth. However, is it fourteen years, nineteen years? However I think it's fourteen. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're getting ready to hatch and come out of the ground, and <laughs> they're full data. of they're full of zombie fungus. So Great. here we go, twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. We got murder hornets, and now we're gonna have zombie cicadas. Let's fucking go. <laughs> Let's fucking go. Whatever. So according to the Philadelphia Inquirer, the infection cannot spread to humans or other organisms as it has evolved over millions of years, specifically only for cicadas. Let's keep it that way. Nobody touch it. Nobody touch it. Don't modify it. Don't try to use it in other things. Do not do scientific experiments. Just leave it. I know. I feel like they're going to try and be like, well, let's see if we can inject zombie cicadas into murder hornets and it's cancel. gonna be worse cancel. no cancel no do not fund this project this is this is one thing that i will say science you take a back seat and you shut the hell up we're done <laughs> we're done no moss no moss no moss <laughs> oh god so i've talked a lot about insects and you're probably wondering can any of this happen to humans i'm excited I'm not excited, but I'm excited. <laughs> well, the answer is no. Uh, Thank God. At least not right now, in terms of these like zombifying fungus. Mm-hmm. However, there are cases of fungal diseases mm-hmm. that have affected humans, both past and present. One of those, a very dangerous one, is Candida auris. So this very ominous. this fungus called Candida auris, or auris, auris, I want to say it's like the aurora. It's an au. So auris, 
can't say words. Thank you for listening. Um, it preys on people with weakened immune systems, and it is quietly spreading across the globe. C. auris is a fungus that can cause potentially deadly infections if it enters the bloodstream. And over the last five years, um, it has hit a neonatal unit in Venezuela, swept through a hospital in Spain, forced a prestigious British medical center to shut down its intensive care unit, and taken root in India, Pakistan, and South Africa. Oh, boy. An elderly man was admitted to the Brooklyn branch of Mount Sinai Hospital for an abdominal surgery. And a blood... Sinai, sorry. No, I, you're good. I mean, we know, we know at this point I'm not good at pronouncing things. Don't uh, worry. Mount Sinai Hospital for an abdominal surgery. Um, a blood test revealed that he was actually infected with the newly discovered fungus. Um, mm. And it's as deadly as it was mysterious. So the doctor swiftly isolated him in the intensive care unit. Sadly, he died after 90 days in the hospital. However... The Oris did not. The test showed it was everywhere in the room. So invasive that the hospital needed special cleaning equipment and had to rip out some of the ceiling and floor tiles to eradicate it. I'm so glad that they were so thorough, though. Right? It's so tenacious in part because it is impervious to major antifungal medications, making it a new example of one of the world's most intractable health threats and the rise of drug-resistant infections. Fungi, just like bacteria, are evolving defenses to survive modern medicine. And antibiotics and antifungals are both essential to combat those infections in people. But antibiotics are also used widely to prevent disease in farm animals, and antifungals are also applied to prevent agricultural plants from rotting. So some scientists cite evidence that the rampant use of fungicides on crops is contributing to the surge in drug-resistant fungi infecting humans. Oh, kind of goes back to the crop yep. thing from the last yep. one. Others, uh, other prominent strains of um, the fungus Canada uh, have not developed significant resistance to drugs, but more than 90% of C. auris infections are resistant to at least one drug, and 30% are resistant to two or more. So nearly half of the patients who contract C. auris die within 90 days. Wow. Because they're testing multiple medications, and it seems to be immune. So... It's an emerging fungus that presents a serious global health threat that the CDC is concerned about for three main reasons. It is often multidrug resistant, meaning that it is resistant to multiple antifungal drugs commonly used to treat candida infections. Mm -hmm. Some strains are resistant to all three available classes of antifungals. It is difficult to identify with standard laboratory methods, and it can be misidentified in labs without specific technology. The misidentification may lead to inappropriate management. Mm -hmm. It has caused outbreaks in healthcare settings. For this reason, it is important to quickly identify C. auris in a hospitalized patient so that the healthcare facilities can take special precautions to stop it from spreading. Because like with that dude in the intensive care unit, it was everywhere. Right. And especially since it specifically attacks people with weakened immune systems, it's just it's a free-for-all if it gets to, which is why you mentioned it was all intensive care units. Yeah, exactly. And ne- also, ne- I mean, like, if it can't... Neonatal 
my heart hurt, though. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. That one's bad. And also, yeah. I mean, like, if you can't for identify you it. Know, yeah, for those of you who don't know, neonatal is uh, is premature babies, for the most part, or babies who are either underweight, uh, underdeveloped, or need intensive care. Right, so neonatal. they are definitely immunocompromised. Yes. Um, And also, I mean, like, you can't discover it unless you have specific technology. So a lot of the people who contract it are being misdiagnosed and mistreated, and that's probably leading to why they eventually don't make it. Right. However, if you're panicking right now, don't. Um, this is crazy information, uh, but as of July 27th, 2020, the case count is only at 1,197. Oh. Which, in the grand scheme of things that we're dealing with right now, are very, it's very small, it's very manageable, they're trying to do more research yep. um, and contain it and figure out where it's coming from. But as of right now, they don't know. So it's more so about, like, when they find it, they contain it. This is what you can fund. So so don't fund the zombie cicadas, but fund the finding of the origin of this. Yes. This I support. Let's yes. do this. <laughs> as much as we feel sorry for the zombie cicadas, this is this is a little more important. A little bit. This I mean, one it actually infects us, and I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, it does, and like also, yeah. like I mean, if this were to get worse, we could have another global pandemic on our hands. Yep. Only this one and being fungus instead of viral. And and fungal antifungal medicine in itself is also very harsh. It's something that that isn't very easy as a treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also not very accessible. It's very expensive, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's not as as you said with mis, with uh, misdiagnosis. It is something that is very easily misdiagnosed as something else, and it's either more viral or antibacterial. So it's um, yeah, it's it 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 has a lot of potential to be bad. So let's stop it before it's bad. <laughs> exactly what Yabba said. Yes. Also, I watch a lot of doctor shows. Hi. <laughs> I mean, like same. Um, now. Many healthy people naturally carry um, a species of yeast like the candida fungi. So, like, before you freak out, if you ever Googled anything about, like, a fungal infection and you see the word candida, know that that's not necessarily candida auris. Like, it's Correct. a type. It's just not. But we, we naturally carry um, that type of fungi in our system. Yep. Um, we, have, and- we have a lot of very natural biomes. Yes, we do. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's harmful. So Canada also um, cause, causes superficial infections. So um, like yeast infections and, yep. um, you know, which is something that women suffer from, mm-hmm. but is completely treatable and yep. often sometimes goes away on its own. Yes, it does. But even seemingly mild fungi like candida can prove deadly when your immune system is weakened. So people living with HIV or organ transplantations or even cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy are vulnerable to this range of fungal infections that would normally be harmless or treatable. But overall, candida or candidiasis are totally mild. Um, It's just candida auris that is posing a major threat. The majority of fungal outbreaks uh, that we know of can be attributed to either environmental exposure or a contaminated product. So two on-record outbreaks were linked to contaminated medications. 
In 2012, two medications produced by a single compounding pharmacy in Florida uh, were contaminated with Fusarium and Bipolaris, uh, respectively shipped to 15 states and injected into the eyes of patients undergoing detrectomies. So as a result, 47 patients developed, I don't know what that word is, I'm going to admit it, I, endo, endophthalmitis. Let's go with that. That's what that word is. It's a big word. No one come for Endophthalmitis? me. Endophthalmitis? Endophthalmitis? Let's go with that. I can't read it, but from what it sounds like phonetically, that's how my brain would process that. Endophthalmitis. Uh, most lost vision, which is sad. Oh, that's not sucks. That's not a fun thing. No. Um, yeah. In 2012, uh, fungal meningitis also had an outbreak. Um, meningitis there- is no joke. Yeah, and this was because a medication was shipped to 23 states, potentially exposing nearly 14,000 individuals to this contaminated medication. And as a result, 752 people developed meningitis, um, arachniditis, or spinal paraspinal abscesses, and 64 patients died, making this the deadliest fungal outbreak to date. And that was sourced in 2015. So I would assume that since no other fungal outbreaks have happened since then, it is still the most deadly. So you've probably heard of viral meningitis, which is relatively benign, and those infected may recover without specific therapy. Bacterial meningitis, uh, particularly meningococcal, meningococcal, that's how you say that, meningococcal Mm -hmm. meningitis can be acute and severe, but it is treatable if diagnosed early. The outbreak um, being fungal meningitis is a rare form because fungi do not usually infect individuals with a healthy immune system. Unlike viral and bacterial meningitis, fungal meningitis is not contagious. It is treatable, but the symptoms are insidious. They begin slowly and not very dramatically. So you get a fever and chills, headache, a stiff neck from the inflammation. People lose their Yep. People lose their appetite, feel ill, can be nauseated, and can vomit. But there's something else that's subtle. It seems these fungi have the capacity to invade little blood vessels in and around the brain, causing bleeding and producing symptoms that mimic a stroke. The difficulty speaking, loss of balance, trouble walking, those symptoms can occur even without a fever. So physicians have to learn that the patient who presents with stroke symptoms may actually be part or may actually be in part having fungal meningitis instead of just a stroke. Ow. So it is treatable if caught early, but it can have long-term uh, after effects. So there was a woman sure. on record uh, who had gotten fungal meningitis back in 2003 and is still suffering today with issues caused by it. Wow. So environmental exposures in other common or is another common cause of fungal outbreaks. For example, a recent cluster of Rhizopus delamar infections in a children's hospital in New Orleans was linked to contaminated linens. Um, in this outbreak, five children did die. Just sad. Um, another example is that 13 people developed necrotizing cutaneous mucormycosis 
after receiving puncture wounds caused by flying debris during a tornado. Oh my god. Right? You get impaled by something during a tornado and then you get a fungal infection because of it. That's insane. Other common fungi infiltrators is mold, which we all mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. So that's a fungus that grows in the form of multicellular filaments called hyphae. Molds are ubiquitous, so the mold spores are a common component of household and workplace dust. However, when mold spores are present in large quantities, they can present a health hazard to humans, potentially causing allergic reactions and respiratory problems. Indeed. So some molds also produce um, mycotoxins, mycotoxins, that can pose serious health risks to humans and animals, and some studies claim that exposure to high levels of mycotoxins can lead to neurological problems and, in some cases, death. Prolonged exposure, uh, which is like daily home exposure, may be particularly harmful. So mold in the home can usually be found in damp, dark, or steamy areas like bathrooms, kitchens, cluttered storage areas, recently flooded areas, basements, plumbing spaces, areas with poor ventilation, and outdoor areas with humid environments. And right, symptoms... House is infected. Seriously. And symptoms caused by mold allergies are watery, itchy eyes, a chronic cough, headaches or migraines, difficulty breathing, rashes, tiredness, sinus problems, nasal blockage, and frequent sneezing. So mold can also pose a hazard to um, humans and animals when they are consumed, following the growth of certain molds on um, stored food, which... Funny enough, and I don't know why I didn't think about this until now, but one of the conspiracy theories behind the Salem witch trials is actually that their uh, barrels that were full of like bread flour and yeast had actually accumulated so much mold that when they baked bread for the town, it caused people to hallucinate, and that's why they think the Salem witch trials happened. Again, foiled by fungus. Spoiled by fungus. So, like, it seriously not only can lead to huge pandemic outbreaks, but also... people. Yeah, the downfall of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I didn't think about that until now. Like, that's one of my, like, fun facts about the Salem Witch Trials, because no one actually knows what happened, whether it was, you know, all a lie and it was over land, um, hmm. whether it was... Women just, you know, just fucking shit up for the fun of it. Being independent. <laughs> being independent. In the norms and people being like, he has to be crazy. He has to be a witch. He has to be one of those two. Wanting to so. run around naked in the woods and being, you know, ruined for it. But no, I mean, one of, one of the strong conspiracy theories was that a lot of their food, because it wasn't kept well had accumulated mold and it was causing people to feel sick. It was causing people to hallucinate. It was causing people to suffer in ways that people at the time could not explain. Um, and so they just blamed it on witchcraft, which that's Great. one of my favorite like conspiracy theories because I feel like it's very totally possible. It's very plausible. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I don't know the chemistry makeup if, if things can get like, you know, there, there's 
when you say ingested, I don't know if that can also just be flour, but even if they have just bread sitting out and they just eat it, like, right, you know, yeah, fully cooked bread, yeah, fully so, cooked, like, you can, I mean, you can totally make moldy bread, like, yeah, you can cook it with moldy ingredients and, and still get food poisoning, absolutely. No, thank you. So, some molds, uh, that uh, produce mycotoxins uh, are often called toxic mold and refers to the mold that produces like a specific mycotoxin called Batibortris tartarum. Don't know if that's right. We're just going to say S tartarum. Uh, but not all molds do that, but that specific one. Exposures to high level of the mycotoxins can lead to neurological problems and in some cases death, as I said, and prolonged exposure can be particularly harmful. So black mold or toxic black mold is a variety of microfungus that produces its conidia in slime heads. All gross. Um, it is sometimes found in soil and grain, but the mold is most often detected in cellulose-rich building materials from damp or water-damaged buildings. And claims of health problems related to this mold have been documented in human and animals since the 1930s. More recently, S. charterum uh, has been linked with so-called sick building syndrome, which is basically like everyone knows that like if you have water damage in your house, like you have someone come and check for black mold because that is what is most dangerous. Like, you know, mold, common mold can be dangerous in high amounts, but black mold is just dangerous in and of itself, being around it all the time for prolonged periods of time. So black mold can cause a wide variety of disease. If these fungi get into um, your skin, they can form large warts and or cauliflower-like lesions. They can also cause areas of swelling and redness that may constantly leak fluid and be associated with pain and discomfort. Other molds may infect toenails or fingernails, causing discoloration. Black mold is also uh, was behind the most infamous lawsuit in Texan history, having uh, doled out $32 million. Ooh. So, fun, fun story. Yeah, fun story. Melinda Ballard was an activist for insurance policyholders in America, and in 1999, she sued her insurer over mold damage in her 22-room Austin, Texas mansion. So it started with a series of leaks, and within a year, Melinda Ballard's 11,500-square-foot Texan dream home was quarantined. Her three-year-old son, Reese, was on daily medication to treat scarred asthmatic lungs that he had. Um, her husband, Ron Allison, had lost his memory along with his job, and the family was living out of suitcases and locked in a seemingly endless battle with their insurance company, all over mold. So Melinda Ballard believes her child or husband would have died if something had not intervened. Their house's copper plumbing system sprang a series of leaks starting in 1998, and that December, the hardwood floors in the living and dining room began to warp. By March 1999, the family, as well as the groundskeeper and nanny, were suffering from headaches, dizziness, fatigue, then respiratory and sinus problems. So, profusely bloody noses as well. 
Ballard recalls that it was grotesque and that she would cough up the hardest stuff you've ever seen. It was blood, but it was hard as a rock. Coagulated. That's gross. Yeah, they were coughing up coagulated blood because they were exposed to so much mold. That's awful. And everyone tested negative for allergies, so no one associated the symptoms with the house. Then, on April 1st, um, a plane trip from Austin, Ballard ran into an indoor air quality consultant, Bill Holder, and he saw her cough up blood and asked what was wrong with her. And when she said that she didn't know, his next question was, had any water damage happened in your house recently? So he, right? He was the one to be like, that ain't right. Yeah, no, no kidding. So their case started as a single claim for water damage and turned into a case about mold contamination in the entire house. I mean, we're talking like Hill House level mold. Um... And it will be several years before three-year-old Reese uh, would be old enough for a cognitive test to see if it had actually, like, caused any brain um, malfunctions. Uh, but there was an ongoing battle with farmer's insurance, which Ballard insists knew about the danger of her family and did nothing to alert or protect them. Ballard filed a $100 million lawsuit against farmers. And in it, she claims other things that farmers ignored, uh, repeated warnings from Richard Roberts um, of double R hardwood floors, that buckling in floors had to be removed immediately or dangerous molds could grow. So, like, the person that came to inspect the floors when they began to warp after the water damage told the insurance company, hey, like, we need to get this replaced, we need this- to approve cleaning this shit out you need to have the homeowners get it paid for so this happens and they're in a better environment exactly like you need to do all this stuff because mold's gonna grow and they basically ignored it um so hayes county district attorney michael wank uh initiated a grand jury investigation to consider criminal charges against the insurance company for That'll, that'll wake him up for mishandling ballard's claims And they were one of the first cases to highlight the dangerous results of toxic mold and change how normal indoor mold was viewed in all of America. And she and her husband, Ron Allison, were awarded $32 million in 2001 as a result of the lawsuit against farmers insurance for mold damage. The award was later changed to $4 million, just out of disputes and and whatnot. But as a re- yeah, but as a result of her case and the attention she received, Ballard founded Policyholders of America, which is a consumer advocate group, and Homer's Homeowners Insurance Information Clearinghouse. Wow, good so she's that. a badass lady. No kidding. So I wanted to end that on like a slightly positive note of like mold is terrible and can kill you. But also, if your insurance company fucks up, you can get millions of dollars. So, um, yeah, but that was just a little, there's, I didn't have a big major crime story this time, but, um, I thought crazy and fascinating and went down a million different ways and I loved every minute of it. So I mean, like, I just, I just found it super fascinating. Like just fungus in general. Like, we play The Last of Us, we see yep. the fungus, but, like, can that happen? How does that happen? 
what has affected humans so far. I mean, like, it's just interesting to learn about the different types and strains and, like, what could potentially go wrong. Um, But currently, there's nothing like flickers and infected, thank God, and the zombie cicadas can keep it to themselves. Keep it to themselves. Keep that party in the cicada party. (laughs) Exactly. That's it. But y'all should check your homes. If you're feeling sick, it might not be COVID, but it might be black mold. So make sure to get inspections often. Um, Because it's not fun. It's not good. No. Nope. And as somebody who had uh, bouts of, um, this was years ago, but as someone who had bouts of, of chronic, unexplained illnesses for a long period of time, it is nice to at least eliminate a potential problem rather than just not knowing. Exactly. And also, for the first time, I will tell a story about my dad instead of my mom on this podcast. But when I, when I was in my old apartment last year, I had significant water damage. Mm-hmm. Um, the pipe in the apartment up and over from me had a pipe burst. Um, or the pipe burst gr- grammar is somewhere yeah. in there. Um, and it flooded through the wall and through the floor of my apartment. Oh, shit. And it was insane. And it was like a waterfall happening indoors. It was crazy. And the only thing they did was they hired some... I remember your tweets very <laughs> Yeah, I was crying a lot. Um, and not like a Last of Us crying. More like a no. what's happening to my life crying. Um, but... They just hired some dude to come and, like, vacuum up the water. And he, like, gave me a fan. And he was like, leave this on for three days. I'll be back for it. And that was it. They didn't patch up any of the holes. They didn't clean any of the surfaces. And then I was moving out, like, I want to say, like, five weeks later. Um, So I just kind of dealt with it. And then when my dad came to help move me out of that apartment, he said that he walked in, the the whole place smelled like off, different, mm-hmm. and that it instantly gave him a headache, and he didn't want to stay. And he's like, "I will bet so much money that your place had mold already, already, yep. yeah." And in because I mean, this happened in like the month of August, so it's like right. hot and oh, humid, yeah, humidity, it's, humidity, it's prime growing ground. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, I was there all the time, so I'm not going to notice it. Nope. But a third party coming in and being like, hey, I think you have a mold issue. So who knows? If I hadn't moved out, like, I could have had a serious mold issue and gotten very sick. Um, and luckily... You hear that? You hear that? Go to your friend's apartments and sniff, sniff them. them. <laughs> they don't have mold. But don't do that right now because COVID. But still, under... Eventually you know. sniff all of your friend's apartments. Make sure they yes. smell right. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the very in-depth uh, uh, introduction to nightmares. Um, <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> very <laughs> very also, poorly pronounced introduction to nightmares. Honestly, that's how most of those words sound in my brain, so I wouldn't know any different anyway. All right, so, cool. Yeah. This, but besides meningococcal, because I did know meningococcal, because I also had to spell that for a spelling bee once, and that's actually what got me into third place. That's so, insane. See, I, I knew that one. 
I've heard it before, so I felt like I knew I could say it. And then when it yeah. got time to say it, my brain was like, <laughs> there's a lot of guh in there and you don't know where the emphasis is. So mm-hmm. it's totally fine. So, all right. Well, I'm going to take this in a completely different direction. Yes. Um, yes. And I'm going to talk about cholera. Oh, boy. Um, mostly because I know that we're all really tired about hearing about the flu. Um, so I decided to pick another well-known um, pandemic uh, that definitely has some roots, not only in video games and pop culture, um, but also inspired um, a lot of creations when it came to tabletop games, as well as role-playing games, and also a very important incident that happened in one of my favorite games uh, from Blizzard Entertainment. So, here we go. I'll give you a little background about cholera for those who don't know. Woo! Uh, cholera, right? <laughs> Yay! Um, cholera is an infection of bacteria in the small intestines um, that induces violent vomiting and diarrhea. And when I quite literally mean violent, I mean violent. It's I should be laughing. I know, but that's but but it's it's horrifying. Like the 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 muscle contractions and the spasms. And um and everything that these people go through when they're infected is awful. And nowadays it is something that can be pretty easily treated. Um it's it still uh, does result in some deaths um every year. I'll get into the numbers in a little bit. But um during its peak, it was a terrifying disease during its peak. Um symptoms can range from being asymptomatic, so you have absolutely nothing to mild, which is usually um a fever, maybe being slightly nauseated or maybe having some uh, indigestion or some uh, intestinal issues or severe to the point where you you can't stand, you can't walk, you are just completely incapacitated and you are either barfing or you're pooping and it's awful. So um, the classic classic symptom is large amounts of watery diarrhea and it's to the point where it lasts for a few days and to the point where you're not even passing anything that you can it literally squeezes out all of the moisture and water from your body and passes it out into your body. Um, yes, it's awful. Um, therefore, the main reason for death is not actually from cholera, but the effects of it, and primarily that's dehydration. Um, the primary causes for this is poor sanitation and dirty drinking water. So I will, once we get to the certain years that this happened, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, no, that, that was definitely a problem back then. Um, and the main way that it gets classified as a pandemic is not only because of the breadth of where it spread, but also that it could take up to five days for someone to show symptoms. So there is a small incubation period. You could show it within two hours. You could show it nearly immediately. Or um, you could already have traveled across you know, the entire town of London multiple times and infected 50,000 people along your way uh, before you even before you even had any symptoms. Um, so today, uh, cholera still affects an estimated up to three to five million people worldwide. Um, however, the death rate is very small in comparison to the infected number. Um, it only causes about uh, 28,000 to 130,000 deaths a year. So while that is quite a staggering number still, it is in comparison to the infection to death rate a whole lot smaller than it has been in quite literally centuries past. 
Um, and while it is not common everywhere, it can still happen anywhere in the world. Actually, in the U.S., there are still about 1,000 cases of cholera. Um, sometimes those are people who are traveling. Uh, so those are people who are actually coming to the United States um, or coming back to the United States, whether it's emigrating or immigrating. Um, and uh, it could be also from travel. So the reason why cholera gets such a bad rap is not only because of how violently sick and easily spread it can be, but there have actually been seven named pandemics over just the past 200 years. I'm going to say that again. <laughs> there have been seven major pandemics of cholera over the past 200 years. <laughs> yep. Um, and it's estimated that through most of them, anywhere from one to four million people have died. Whoa! Worldwide, for each individual one. Yes. Whoa. So this is a very serious disease, and it is something that has not only, um, it, it not only kind of jump-started this whole um, world response to these types of things, this was the catalyst. This is why governments talk to each other. This is why they share data. Um, this is why um, a lot of advancements in human society were also trying to be spread, because they were seeing, um, they were, I mean, there, there were times when, uh, for instance, uh, like Russia or India were getting hit by this year after year after year and were having death counts after death counts after death counts. And they were saying, this, this can't go on any further. We need to compare notes. We need to figure this shit out. No pun intended. Um, so the first one, they estimate that it happened uh, in 1817 near Calcutta, India. Um, and it was one of the hardest hit regions um, out of any pandemic, uh, since there were not as um, great, well-kept records during that time. The infection rate uh, versus death rate was considered still very high. In some literature, it was 8 million people died. 8 million people. However, Scientists have gone back and forth, and they think that they actually estimated around 1 to 2 million people died in India alone over a three-year period, which is still absolutely devastating. Yeah, um, but, but it's not yes. 8 million. But it's not 8 million. They, they said that there's, there's no statistical way that that could have happened, okay. um, specifically in the Calcutta region and specifically where they know that it spread. Gotcha. Um, and still... Um, they think that only about three to four million people died through this pan this particular pandemic, which went from eight went from 1817 to 1824. Jesus. Um, so so the pandemics were very widespread. Um, this one uh, went from uh, Thailand to Bangkok to Manila, which is in the, in the Philippines, to Java, Oman, um, and then China. It went up uh, as far north as Russia, but seemed to have been stopped by an exceedingly cold winter by 1822. However, it did reach parts of Japan, the Persian Gulf, Baghdad, Syria, and as well as the Mediterranean Sea, um, specifically Africa and a little bit of Crete and Italy. Jesus. So, yes. So one reason why this is, these are also really important is because you see um, how they travel uh, anywhere between five to ten years out. And that's why it's such a big pandemic, because people did get infected. Some people were able to recover. But the sheer number of just people that were quite literally dying in the streets in most of these major cities was pretty, um, was pretty epic. Um, 
by uh, 1824, the transmission of this particular disease had ended. Um, there had not been uh, any large swaths of deaths that had happened uh, with cholera, and they think that uh, because of a particularly another particularly cold winter from 1823 to 1824, they killed the bacteria in most of the water supplies. So I'm not going to go through everything um, in depth, but I, I do at least want to touch upon the really important parts of each of these pandemics. Um, so number two. Uh, started right back up again five years later in 1829 and ended in 1837. Um, so this one also started in India, uh, had actually gone north, so it did not go east this time. It actually went north up into Russia, probably following trade routes. Most of these are following trade routes. Most of these are following um, steamships. Most of these are following regular ships. Um, and then some of them also traveled by train. So as it reached um, Russia, it had also continued into Finland and Poland. Um, this was also the first time the outbreak, the outbreak had successfully reached the UK. Uh, it had reached the UK by 1831 and actually claimed 50,000 lives in and around London. Um, Irish, immigrants, Irish immigrants who were fleeing poverty, um, specifically during the potato famine during this time, carried the disease from Europe to North America. This was also the first time it had traveled from Europe into an entirely different continent. So now we have reached three different continents, which is also why it reaches the pandemic levels. Um, uh, yeah, I know. Bananos. So yeah, they, they they got hit by quite quite a number of, of unfortunate events during that whole time. Um, so uh, in the summer of 1832, the disease itself killed 20,000 people in Paris, uh, just in Paris, just in Paris. Yeah, at that time, there was only 65,000 people in the city. Oh, God. Yes. Um, the disease traveled from coast to coast in uh, North America, uh, even reaching so far as parts of California, and it moved south to Mexico and Latin America, killing thousands in its wake. Um, it did seep before it reached South America, um, but again, they're estimating that anywhere from 1.5 to 2 million people um, may have uh, died across at this point, now four continents, four um, different uh, continents, continental regions, I should say, since there some of them are attached. Uh, this was the first time governments um, actively started paying attention to the movement of the disease and tried to surmise how it could have originated. Um, so specifically, Europe and North America were pretty good at this, and then Mexico was able to send some data um, that had also happened in terms of um, at least giving us something to go off of. We didn't have the best relationship with them in 1837, um, so we, we tried our best. Um, there, there were still some tensions, you know, between between different uh, countries, but... I wonder um, why! I wonder why! Yeah, LMO. Huh. Um, so, uh, the number three, the, the, th the third pandemic, uh, started in 1846 and went up until 1860. Um, so this one uh, went from South Asia to Russia to Europe to the UK and then back to North America. So this one definitely made its rounds just again. Um, this was considered one of the worst in terms of the range of death, um, especially with the death rate as most countries suffered a minimum of 50,000 deaths total over the course of this entire pandemic. Uh, Russia was actually one of the worst and probably lost a million people in the span of three years. Wow. Um, some countries like Mexico did reach uh, 200 to 30, or I'm sorry, to 200 to 3,000 uh, dead in just in two years. And this is also how our former president Polk died. 
during this time from cholera. Oh boy. Um, yep. Uh, this is also where uh, it infected uh, great swaths of travelers on the Oregon Trail, which is why it is referenced in the cult classic forever um, enduring 1990s uh, Oregon Trail game, uh, the popular Western expansion path, as well as, you know, you know, Tammy died of cholera. So this is also where that comes from. But it was also, um, it, it infected um, Native American tribes that were traveling out west. It infected Oregon Trail um, uh, travelers, and it also even reached uh, Gold Rush towns. So it was not, it was not uh, picky on who it decided to uh, infect. Well, right, because it's in water, and everyone uses water. And if you just have one person who's sick, you know, go to the bathroom in your only water system that's connected to every, each and every piece of it, if they wash their linens in it, if they drink from it, if they wash their dishes in it, if anything like that, if there was just zero sanitation whatsoever, they were just upstream. If they were just upstream from the river that you were doing all of your business in, um, you're going to get it. Right. So if you drink it, if you're in it, if you're bathing in it, you're, you're just going to get it. So number four started in 1863 and lasted until 1875. So really the 1800s were pretty ripe for most of this to be happening, as I'm sure you can tell. Um, the spread of this was severely helped by the Austro-Prussian War, um, where it then, and this was one of the first times that this had actually started not in India which is also another important thing. Um, there was a lot of xenophobia that sort of popped up with this, as I'm sure we can also see with the flu, where everybody says, oh, you know, because it originated in China, therefore um, it's their disease and they're infecting us with it. It just created this horrible racist stereotype bullshit. Um, and unfortunately, the same thing happened with cholera. Most people were attributing it to uh, Indian or uh, South Asian uh, immigrants. But also just saying, you know, those places are dirty. Who would ever go there? Um, you know, it, it's their disease. It's their disease. Well, this one didn't start there. This one actually started in Europe. Um, it spread across the Mediterranean, went into the Netherlands, went into Russia, and eventually hit the UK. It reached North America as well as Canada um, this time. Hi, and Canada. Spread, uh, south again to Mexico and hit a little bit of Central America and had also gotten into the Caribbean. Um, so this time, the death toll did reach about 1 to 2 million, just again, just like in the last couple. Um, and uh, scientists and governments at this time were actually able to record travel patterns. So they were actually starting to piece things together. They were actively communicating. They were sending ship charters back to one another. Um, they were actually sending dates. They were sending manifestos. They were sending mani manifestos. <laughs> yeah, they were sending <laughs> communist manifestos. Manifestos! <laughs> they were sending ship manifests. Um, to one another, uh, and now dock areas were starting to take note. They were starting to take note of um, places coming in from, you know, if they started seeing uh, pieces coming in from the Mediterranean, they were saying, hey, we're going to keep you over there for a little bit, and then after a couple days, then you can come into our port. So they, they were starting to try to dissuade um, people from docking immediately, especially if they were coming from places that they were starting to hear were having trouble. So this was actually when they were starting to put these in place. Also wow, it sounds super familiar. <laughs> right? Sounds extremely familiar. Travel restrictions? Since when? Since when? But also, yes. I think your your typo of manifesto is very hilarious, just because I can I can picture someone just being like, this is my personal opinion piece about what's happening in this world. 
I mean, I'm sure somebody was doing that. I'm sure they were, I'm sure that, you know, th- there were scientists who were trying to figure this out. There were doctors who were trying to figure this out. Um, governments were starting to finally talk to each other. But as I said, this was during the Austro-Prussian War. So there's still a lot of turmoil. There's still a lot of fighting over territory. Um, you know, we haven't fully expanded to the West yet. Um, uh, obviously, we had like the Louisiana Purchase and everything, but you, you still, we were, we just had a lot of beef with people and Europe was, you know, coming off of a couple revolutions and just shit got nobody, crazy. Nobody wants to share information when they got beef. Exactly. Um, so uh, the last large outbreak happened in, uh, started in 1881 to 1896. This was also starting to be spread by world's fairs. That's, that's also something that they were starting to notice. Um, and so uh, with some of the later world's fairs, uh, they were starting to uh, say, hey, before before we just keep conglomerate, um, what's what I'm looking for, mash together all these people from different countries, how about we try, like, toilets? How about we try, like, different running water? Um, so a lot of cities and countries, as they were prepping for their world's fairs and after, as they were prepping for um, a lot of, you know, these summits of, of either, you know, intellectuals or sports or you know, showcases or whatever they were trying to show, um, they started saying, hey, let's not only improve where they're going to be, let's improve our cities to make sure that they're livable and let's start tourism and start all these really great things. So um, London obviously was one of the big ones, New York, Chicago, um, Shanghai, um, let's see, New Delhi, there were a couple other uh, big ones, Baghdad, Jerusalem, um, any major city that you can think of was starting to, to compare notes and like, hey, let's, let's trick and do this. So cities and countries started making initiatives to start cleaning streets, perform garbage disposals, um, and seriously look into cleaner water usage and sanitation. They started making in and out um, uh, in and out waterways, making sure things could actually be treated, started not allowing people to just dump their garbage into like the Thames. I don't know. That might be a little <laughs> bit important. So <laughs> not don't poop in the drinking things. water. <laughs> No shit. Yeah, literally, no shit. Do not shit there. So please stop. Yes. So that was the last one um, that had reached over a million deaths worldwide. So that that was the last one to really um, reach an infection rate. And and please keep in mind that even though I'm saying that a million people died, that could also mean that 15 million people were infected. So even if the ones that aren't, um, even though the people who are infected don't necessarily die, it can still, it still infected a large quantity of people. Um, it, you know, a million people is nothing to, to laugh about, but also think about the death to infection ratio, which is still pretty big. So, oh, number six, from 1899 to 1923. So this one even had a world war in between it. Wow. Um, so now yellow fever was the big one um, during, world war, during World War I. Um, as well as a whole swath of awfulness, um, including the flu. So there, there was also um, the flu that, that happened during this time, and then there was cholera. So needless to say, it was, it was a time when everybody said, okay, now we understand that uh, where these issues are coming from. We're seeing a difference in terms of the cholera outbreaks and where they're happening. They're not happening in major cities now. Now they're happening in places that don't have the systems that they have in major cities. Now it's happening on battlefields. Now it's happening in rural towns. Now it's happening in poor slums. 
Um, now it's happening in specifically countries with struggling uh, and monarchy-centric countries. So this is also what fueled a lot of the revolutions that happened during this time, because since certain monarchies were not spending money on infrastructure and were spending money on lavish parties, let's say, um, Romanovs, there were um, a lot of upheavals that happened. Um, and uh, there were a lot of uh, scientific correlations between actually having sanitary drinking water and, you know, having crazy hunting parties that it may, may or may not involve um, human people. So they were starting to see a little difference of approach when it came to public health um, and said, you know what, we're going to stick with the sanitation. So this also was the first time that outbreaks did not happen in large cities and did not reach over a million people. This is the first time it ever happened. This is something to celebrate. It was still 80,000 people that died, estimated, throughout the world. This did hit all of the continents, including India, Philippines, Bangladesh. Um, it went through Russia. It went through uh, India. It went through Africa. It went through Europe and North America. It did not reach Mexico, and it did not reach uh, uh, Central America for once. Thank God. So um, this also did um, very heavily affect Russia as well as the Ottoman Empire countries. So this also led into um, a lot of the revolution that may have happened during this time. Um, and this was also uh, one of the best outcomes that they, they that they could have had. This is also when they started actually trying to make vaccines. Um, so they were they were now so scientifically advanced they were actually able to start isolating cultures. Um, they started being able to do stool tests. Um, stool tests are still one of the only ways, still one of the only ways that we can actually confirm that it's cholera. Um, so cholera can't really be found in your blood, but it can be found in your poop. So um, that is also one reason why it was so hard to diagnose. It's still kind of tricky to diagnose. I think now we have it down to a science. Um, but it is that that is one unfortunate hindrance when it comes to cholera is that you do have to test for poop. Yeah, and not not everyone going in being like, I don't feel well is going to have their poop tested first. Exactly. And good news is when it comes to cholera, you end up offering a sample whether you like it or not. So, unfortunately. Yeah. I know. Ricey poops, that's what they call them. Because eventually you're just pooping out cholera. You're not pooping out anything else. You're pooping out cholera and water. Like, what's in it is literally clumps of cholera. It's not food anymore at all. That is so gross. It is gross, which is why it's such an awful disease, which is why we have to stem it. So, the last outbreak, the last, last, last outbreak, which barely, barely reached a quarter million people, barely reached a quarter million people in terms of death, was from 1961 to 1975. By this time, by this time, it had traveled from Istanbul to Russia, India to the Philippines, North Africa, Japan, places in the South Pacific like Guam. It did not reach uh, Europe, and it did not reach North America. However, it was one of the first times that there was a large-scale outbreak. So there were still probably about 2 million people who were infected. But this was the first time that we had intravenous uh, rehydration techniques. This was some of the first times that we had antibacterial meds that would help and slow uh, the progression of it. This is when we had things like Pedialyte or any type of thing that would give electrolytes that were, um, what's the word, less harsh 
than trying to force feed someone food. So it was a way for people to get their uh, their livelihoods and and become stable. Um, this was also when we uh, would pinpoint uh, breakout points and we would start quarantining people and we would send cleanup crews uh, in order to try to get rid of everything and flush out everything. Uh, sanitation crews. Um, so there were, there was a lot of clinics, minute clinics that were almost set up in order to start quick intakes of people to make sure that they could be um, serviced. So testing was still not um, still not as accessible during this time. Um, but it was certainly more accessible than in previous times. Um, also by this time, and this was also in conjunction uh, with a lot of uh, world governments, there are oral vaccines that can be given um, that do either slow the progression, um, stop uh, the really, really bad symptoms, um, specifically vomiting. Um, the diarrhea can happen uh, regardless, but the, it definitely definitely stems the vomiting, which is also a good way to make sure that you're not getting too dehydrated from COVID. So there have been smaller outbreaks, um, but certainly are way more contained than in times past. Um, so they're not actually considered pandemics, mostly because uh, they become epidemics instead, because they are contained to a certain area. And while the infection rate can be pretty high, the death rate can be, still remains very low. So, which is the main piece of, of a pandemic. Um, so, uh, some have happened in the 1990s, a lot of times in the same places that I had mentioned above, and then there was the last one in 2017. So, because of things like cholera, the flu, smallpox, and polio, uh, the world started to learn they couldn't do this alone and needed to work together. Um, the World Health Organization, which is a piece of the UN, actually has initiatives, and when it was set up in 1940, besides polio and smallpox, it took um, disseminating information about cholera as one of its main initiatives. And they actually had asked the CDC to start providing comp the Centers of Disease Control, which it was renamed in like 1992, it was a different name by the 1940s. But um, it was uh, providing comprehensive and accessible guidelines between countries to help rally against this major disease specifically. So we started gathering our notes. We sent them uh, to the WHO. The WHO said, hey, we're going to start putting this um, together in places that we know are hotspots. And because of that information, because of increased information on uh, sanitation and because of really also local population uh, ingenuity, um, specifically in India, uh, just because there are a lot of cultures that still use the game feast the way that it has been used for centuries. But now that there are safer practices and better ways of doing that, um, what would have been uh, potentially another set, uh, starting center for all these outbreaks, there are so many safeguards that are in place, both in treatment um, and in rapid response, and then just also in plain sanitation that uh, cholera, even though the infection rate is very high, still can be a lot more maintained than it has been in any time before now. So that's cholera. Um, it doesn't have a direct cure. So as I said, cholera doesn't kill you, the effects of cholera does. So the best way for you to survive it is to make sure that you're, you're getting, um, you're stemming all of the symptoms that can cause you death primarily from everything. But does it go away eventually? Like you don't have cholera forever. 
you don't have cholera forever. Um, it's it's an infection. Um, so once the infection passes, it's very much like the flu. Um, so once the infection passes, um, there haven't really been, other than like probably uh, you're a lower weight, um, you know, uh, you're gaunt, and sometimes your skin can be in, can be affected where it turns leathery just because it doesn't have the same level moisture. of moisture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some. Uh, I guess longer lasting effects, but it does not last. Uh, it's it's not like a uh, it's not a terminal illness, and it's not something that um, has too many side effects. It's definitely something that just takes a little bit more time to recover from. Right. Which is why it's very similar to flu. But it's also another call for good hygiene, distancing, quarantining, um, and then also notifying your public health departments uh, because if you have it, then you need to tell other people around you that you have it because if they live in the same living conditions that you do and also practice the same practices they're most likely going to get it right so now curiously enough organizations like the cdc major hospitals and governments um and this is through this is through most countries now um but specifically in the u.s uh they actually use gaming simulation, and scenarios in order to predict pandemics and outbreaks. So they also specifically use tabletop and role-playing games to help provide those simulations of events during an outbreak, how public responds, how they would respond, um, and then even so far as how the disease itself either mutates or spreads. Um, so they use these in order to practice their own responses. They hold actual physical drills in locations, um, or they just do war room simulations where they talk through, this is what we would do in this situation. So this led to a lot of ideas in the gaming community and also the, the successful creation of two mediums of games, ones that we have not explored on the podcast yet, and I'm so excited for you. <laughs> um, so there are two um, really cool examples and um, I'm sorry for the very uh, similar names, but there is Pandemic, which is a tabletop game, and then there is Plague Inc., which is a digital game as well as a mobile game. I know both of those. Yay! Yay. So just to go into them super quick, I will start with Plague Inc. Um, Plague Inc. is a digital format, like I said. Um, it is both desktop as well as found on your mobile, uh, as, as found on mobile devices. So you, in this, play as the disease. So you, your goal in this game is to be the most, most infectious, most virulent, most uh, insidious little shit on this planet. And you have to progress through the game in order to unlock different types of infections, bacteria, virus, parasite, fungus, um, all the way up to nanovirus and bioweapons. Um, so what you want to do is that you want to pick a country and you start with, uh, you start with the world. And then on this, uh, map, you are able to, you were able to see, uh, flight patterns. You were able to see shipping patterns. Um, and you can see how they all interconnect with each other. So you want to be smart on how you choose it. Um, so kind of the, the goal of the game is to create something that is drug resistant, that causes a fair amount of symptoms. Um, and then also can be quite um, infectious and spread. But you don't want to do things too quickly because as the game will simulate, it'll start, it'll start, you know, scientists are starting to notice this 
weird disease that's coming out of Mexico. I think that was the one that I saw on in terms of like them simulating the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't want to alert humans to eat too easily to the fact that you are there. Um, cause it's actually better for you to spread faster and then be lethal and deadly than it is to be lethal and deadly right off the bat, which is why you see a different response to things in real life, like coronavirus, which started as an epidemic in China that turned into a pandemic around the world versus Ebola, which has been, you know, pretty centralized in certain places in Africa. And we've had a couple cases here and there in different countries because unfortunately, um, the symptoms of Ebola are so um, severe and so quick that it's actually easy to contain because the person presents symptoms very quickly. Meanwhile, when you have things like the flu or like cholera, they could be an incubation period of two hours to five days to 14 days. And by that time, you could have come in contact, you could have traveled, you could have done a bunch of different things, um, which is why which is why they're so scary, which is why they're called pandemics. Um, which is why so, the coronavirus is two to 14 days incubation before correct. you start showing symptoms. And then even then, those symptoms could be so mild that you don't know that you're spreading it. Correct. And that's sort of what happened to me. So I was, I was sort of notified pretty quickly, but um, but yeah. So all that stuff is, so what you want to do is you also, so you want to be this virus and then you want to upgrade your infectivity, severity, and lethality. Um, and you kind of want to, you kind of want to outsmart the AI um, in a way that gets you the most infected people, but you also have to keep the most. So it's this nice little game of back and forth of kind of balancing um all of your options to come out with the best and most deadly outcome, which I know sounds really weird, um, but it's actually a pretty fun game. I'm, I'm, I, I was pretty, um, I was pretty impressed by, by it in terms of that. But it is a simulation game, and it is something that, um, it is a tool that also uses a lot of the scenarios that epidemiologists, governments, um, and World Health Organizations actually use to simulate world, real world catastrophes, because if they come up with all these different um, pieces that have the ability to show, you know, people not adhering to something, uh, didn't initiate a travel ban fast enough, um, you know, people, um, I don't know, there's a million different reasons that they give you uh, for that. Oh, um, the virus becomes uh, resistant or there's a bacteria one that mimics it, so it's using the wrong drug. So, you know, just, just a bunch of different things. So, uh, with the AI, uh, like Plague Inc., you are able to get a large volume of different scenarios to play through. But as mentioned before, human behavior still remains a scientific wild card. So yeah, um, it does. Yeah, it does. Um, so you know, it's it's accurate in a scientific sense, but it's not accurate in maybe a real world applicational sense. Um, so just to go over the other one, so there's also a pandemic, which is the tabletop game. Um, and thankfully for this one, you, the players, are the protagonist when it comes to pandemics. So you are actually trying to stamp out the plagues, you're trying to stamp out the viruses, you're trying to stamp out all the bad things. So, uh, in pandemic, and I'm going to use their description because their description was perfect, is it's just a great way to have a glimpse into the game. Um, so several virulent diseases have broken out simultaneously all over the world. 
the players uh, are disease fighting specialists whose mission is to treat diseases, disease hotspots while researching cures for each four plagues um, before they get out of hand. Uh, the game board depicts several major population centers on Earth. Uh, each On each turn, a player can use up to four actions to travel between cities, treat infected populaces, discover a cure, or build a research station. A deck of cards provides the players with these abilities, but sprinkled through the deck are also epidemic cards that accelerate the in or and intensify the disease's activity. In a separate deck of cards, that control the normal spread of infection. So each turn you're fighting against, you're trying to gain uh, really positive things uh, through your through your deck, and then there's also normal things um, that are happening to maybe hinder your progress. Um, so, and I thought it was really cool because you have to actually, you have a lot of ways that you can lose in the game, which I think is a nice way of actually formulating a tabletop game to be truly and absolutely um, co-op cooperative is players will lose if you have eight outbreaks total between the plagues the deck is your time so therefore it's time sensitive and if you are out of cards you lose oh god yeah and then the other way that you lose is if all the plague all the plague cubes those are the little pieces on the game board uh if all of one color is on the board you lose so you have to manage you have to yeah. manage basically everything um, while the only ways you can win is by stemming the disease spread and finding the cures for all four of them. So I kind of like difficult games like that. Right. Um, but you can play a bunch of different roles. You can be a medic, a local liaison, a scientist, a researcher, an operations expert, hello, and a dispatcher. Um, so... Uh, when this game initially came out in 2009, um, it actually, I'm sorry, in 2008, it actually won multiple, multiple industry awards um, for just being an exceptional choice for tabletop gaming. Um, so it's it's out there and it's awesome. And there was actually a 2013 um, edition that also added um, a couple different characters, including the contingency planner and the quarantine specialist. Both people who are very important, we are learning. Yes, and they shouldn't have been fired in 2018. Okay. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Okay, um, so that's so that's kind of a glimpse um, into it. Like, for example, the operations expert can build research stations which are needed to find cures for the diseases and which allow for greater mobility between cities. The scientist needs only four cards of a particular disease to cure it instead of the normal five. Um, and uh, and I think like the medic, if it heals or treats someone, you can treat everyone around it. So if you have like three cubes, you can use one action to heal all three instead of using three actions to heal them, which is pretty cool. Um, so that's kind of uh, the pandemic uh, tabletop. So I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. But where? But where's the juicy bit? Where's the juicy where's, bit, Yabba? Where's where's the cool story? Where's my cool that... thirty-two million dollar lawsuit? <laughs> <laughs> this one did not end in a lawsuit, but it definitely ended in a lot of online player pain. Oh, geez. Um, yes. So, um, so as I said before, one of the main stipulations for a lot of these games is you can't, you can't. Uh, interpret there's no real way for you to have simulated human behavior 
because that is the wild card. That is something that cannot be statistically figured out. You have likelihoods, but even likelihoods could be thrown out the window depending on what the hell happens. So the CDC, however, was faced with a real-life simulation example. I'm going to say that again. They were faced with a real-life simulation example that came from not only an unexpected source, but came with invaluable insight into the facet scientists and artificial intelligence can't replicate human behavior. Oh boy, I'm yes. excited! <laughs> so I would also like to give a nod to my friend Jason, uh, who reminded me of this part. Thanks, I was Jason. Talking to him. I was talking to him about all this stuff, and he was just like, did you know about this incident? And I was just like, tell me more. And he did, and it was super fantastic. So I'm going to set the scene for you. I'm going to take you back to the early 2000s, specifically 2005. And it's with this little game that you might know called World of Warcraft from Blizzard Entertainment. Now, I was an avid WoW player during this time, and I kept trying to think about how I didn't experience this. And then I remembered this was my senior year in high school, which means I had ACT prep and college visits oh. and a million other things. So I was not actually on until closer to Christmas of 2005 after the summer. So I, I was wondering, because I was just like, I was here for this. Like I was, I was a cognizant human being during all of this. And I don't remember shit. And now, and now it makes sense. So, 2005, Pax 1.7 for the vanilla, the base game of World of Warcraft came out and the players were receiving an amazing update. They were getting the new raid dungeon, Skullgrub, also known as Bib 2G. So, from Stranglethorn Barrel, you're welcome. Anyhow, it was the first of its kind in terms of it was a 20-man raid um, and it was released on, oops, hang on, I went too far, I went too far, September 13th, 2005. My half birthday. There you go. Um, so in this one, uh, it's twenty man. So you have to you have to have twenty people if you're smart, uh, in order to survive this thing. And you had to kill a number of mini bo- mini bosses and potentially side bosses to reach and unlock an encounter with the big bad baddie known as Hakar the Soul Player. He's this giant little like Quetzalcoatl serpent king thing, pretty dope. So during this fight. There is a communicable, a communicable debuff called Corrupted Blood. This debuff inflicts 200 to 300 damage per, per debuff tick. If any of these words do not make sense, please let me know. I mean, I understand it, was, it but maybe you should explain it. Okay. <laughs> For so anyone deep- listening who doesn't understand what a, a debuff tick is. Yes. So a debuff tick is typically um, a second. Um, and as long as uh, this this particular curse, disease, um, it could be blood hemorrhage, it could be really a number of things. It is a move that is placed on a player uh, in order to uh, give them a disadvantage, essentially, um, is what the debuff is. So this one uh, ticks away health. It's supposed to only last for about 10 seconds. Um, but to just give you an example, um, a player who is level 60, depending on their class, they had to be level 60 in order to begin this uh, raid, um, is, uh, was 2,000 to 6,000 health. So if you have 200 to 300 damage and you're getting whacked over the head by a boss, that could be some pretty significant endgame damage. Yeah. 
you can start losing very valuable players depending on what they have out there. So really, this was a workout for your healers. Trust me, I know I was an undead holy disc priest during this time, and it was a pain in my ass. So anyhow, um, so here is the situation. While the debuff is only supposed to be available in Zolgarub, and it's supposed to despawn as characters leave, there was a bug in the game. Warlock minions and hunter pets who got infected with corrupted blood were able to travel out of the instance still infected. A lot of times, the players and the, or the, the pets and the minions would despawn with the buff still on them and would be able to leave the instance. And as they were respawned, either in towns, major cities, or around other players, people got infected. Oh my god! So, I'm going to give you the chaos that happened on September 13th, 2005. This happened hours after the update happened. People were grinding. They were like, listen, we're going to beat this bitch. We're going to win everything. And then suddenly it happened. If they were Alliance, if they were Horde, they were just like, hey, what's up? We killed this bitch. This is it. Despawn your pets. Let's teleport back to Ironforge. Let's teleport back to, Og to Ogremar. Let's go ahead and go celebrate. Let's go deposit all of our loot in the bank. So they would respawn their pets. The pets would then infect other players. Other players would die. Unfortunate. Terrible. Here's the real problem. The debuff actually started infecting non-playable characters, NPCs. NPCs would show zero symptoms of it, and then it would also not despawn because they didn't die and they weren't supposed to be infected with the debuff. So let's say it was at the auction house. If one person got it at the auction house, you know how many people camp out in the auction house? Either they're AFK or just chilling right there. People were dying in droves because no matter where they could go in the city, if any of the NPC characters around them were infected, it was bouncing off of them and then back to the NPCs. So before they would even die, it was just switching from both playable characters to non-playable characters intermittently throughout the entire city. Oh my god! Yeah. Yeah. So uh, low-level characters didn't stand a chance. If they were anywhere below, I want to say, level 50, level 45, they would die within maybe three seconds. Of being infected. Of just being infected. And thankfully it didn't stack because that would just be horrible. But then so, when they respawned, would they just die again? Like So so you have to be within a certain proximity unless you wanna unless you wanna take um rebirth sickness uh and you wanna respawn from the graveyard. But the problem is is that if people aren't realizing that they're getting infected or if it's a guard that's going from the center of Ogremar all the way out into like freaking Razorbane or some shit. Um, it's it's going to infect every NPC along the way. It's going to infect every player along the way. Right. So by the, happen, by the time that ahead. you get back to your dead body to respawn, everyone around you is right. Everyone's around yeah. you is infected, so the, you would respawn and instantly die again. Exactly. Holy shit. So, um, this is where a lot of people started seeing the one thing that you can't replicate, and that's human response. While these are still playable characters in an online world, these are still humans that are controlling all of the actions. So you had a lot of people actually starting up um, different behaviors. You had healers 
that were saying, okay, we're going to walk with this one dude and we're going to heal him the whole way for him to go turn in this quest. And as they would heal him up, they would get infected and then they would all die. And then they would have to go to, let's say, the quarantine militia. So then there would be people who would set up communicable either either through vent or through trade channels or through general chat and be like, hey, this these people came back, one pet brought it back, exit the city. And they would tell people to exit the city. And of course, there were people who just didn't listen. But if anybody who was traveling in from Zeppelins, anybody traveling in from um, from teleports, anybody traveling in from things who weren't getting those notifications, because you can't, it's region-based, they had to do that. So then they started setting up guilds. Then they started setting up people who could communicate with other people in guilds in order to tell their guildmates not to go into the cities. So it became this huge response. But at the same time, you also had what every internet game has. You have trolls! <laughs> So you also had people who were actively getting infected and then spreading it of spreading it and then also doing kamikaze missions into the opposing faction towns. So you had people who were getting infected um, from Ironforge who were then hopping over to Undercity and then infecting the entire Undercity because that's what they wanted to do with their life. So and then they would set up chains on how to infect people. So it was a whole thing. Because, again, it's only a debuff that lasts for a certain amount of time. So you right. either have to give it to an NPC or you have to have it on your pet. So they would just spawn their pet outside of Undercity and then run into the city. So now this was something that they could not fix just willy-nilly. And Blizzard started getting um, started getting a notification. I think it got up to, like, 17 different servers at one time were just completely paralyzed by the debuff bouncing around too many NPCs. People were dying too much. Um, it was just not playable. Frame rates took a shit. It was just, it was just not, it was not a good time. Um, but they, they would, yeah. So, so this was something that was absolutely fucking legendary in terms of both responses and just the pure happenstance that somebody would overlook a bug <laughs> this size that would cause that much fucking chaos. Um, so because nerds rule the world, and I'm sure we all know this by now, people who were epidemiologists who were playing this game, noticed this behavior, started recording this behavior, and there were actually a couple scientific papers that were published talking about how they could use internet gaming, specifically World of Warcraft or things like Second Life, in order to help replicate um, the human behavior during a pandemic. Now, the only thing that they said makes the Corrupted Blood incident a true scientific miracle is the fact that it happened on accident is the fact that it happened like a pandemic is the fact that it happened unknowingly unwittingly and unintentionally. with no previous information and unintentionally and that's what makes it a perfect case study for how do humans respond when they are faced with something this destructive this this um it, it interrupts so much of not only their integral lives but it's, got, it's gotten to the point of being able to paralyze their day-to-day -day activities. So a lot of the papers that were written on this, both in 2007, um, 2008, and 2010, were excuse me, also brought up again this year because of how similar everything is to what is happening with coronavirus. So, 
The Centers of Disease Control did actually, I'm sorry, I need to say their full name. The Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, which is just still named the CDC, contacted Blizzard Entertainment, and unfortunately, they did not have a requested data analytics of this because it was a glitch. So they only are able to go off of um, human accounts right. uh, when it comes to those things. But it has been used as something um, in epidemiology in comparison to SARS and the avian influenza outbreaks. So it has been used in terms of research um, as it relates to that of just kind of just trying to take into account the human factor of when it comes to real life epidemics. Um, so uh, here's a direct quote. Um, the corrupted blood incident was described as a fascinating yet accidental case study of modeling disease origins and control. It was compared to a real-life epidemic in that it originated in a remote, uninhabited region and was carried by travelers to larger regions. Hosts um, of were both human and animal, comparing to the avian flu, was passed through close contact, and there were people, in this case, non-playable characters who could contract it who were asymptomatic. So that's a direct quote from a lot of those things. Um, so Nina Fefferman from Tufts. Um, as well as uh, Ran D. Balser, Dr. Ran D. Balser from Israel, um, had all uh, written um, academic studies when it comes to most of uh, all these things. She also, um, Dr. Nina Fefferman, had also talked at a Games for Health conference in Baltimore in 2008, as well as the 2011 Game Developers Conference. Um, and how the incident uh, and massive multiplayer online populations can solve the problems inherent um, with epidemics with more traditional models. So, again, uh, minus the trolls, of course, who intentionally brought things to the cities to cause chaos, um, the factor that, the, that this situation brings in terms of interpreting human reaction uh, is invaluable. Um, and uh, that's how an oops created a scientifically studied phenomenon that is still used today as reference for human behavior during a spontaneously catastrophic event based on a plague. And that's the Corrupted Blood Incident, 2005 for World of Warcraft. That's insane! Isn't it? That's so good! Isn't it? I, I literally no had to choose that's something amazing. other than cholera because of this particular incident. That's amazing. Like, I had... I had to change which one I was going to talk about. So I want to talk about Legionnaires' disease originally uh, and, how it was, and how it was freaking crazy. But then I read this and I was just like, nope, we're going big. We're going big. We're going rice poop. We're doing it. So <laughs> it was for the World of Warcraft. It was for the World of Warcraft. That's so. crazy. That's honestly yeah. crazy. And like NPCs were like the asymptomatic ones, right? Because they like they, couldn't yep. die. They didn't have health. They couldn't die. Um, they did have health, but it didn't kick and it didn't affect them. It right, didn't affect like it didn't. They, they didn't have a damage. They didn't have right. a damage out. So, mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, so that's, that's amazing. Well, I think we can all agree that there are some definite trolls in the real world uh, who. <sighs> I just want. Treat I just things. want people. Listen, now I'm gonna get on soapbox for a second. So I, <laughs> I know that this is hard. I'm not saying that what everyone is going through is easy. It is not easy to keep your job. I was unemployed uh, for many months. It is not easy to live in a world of uncertainty. It is not easy to live in a world where you don't trust people. 
it is not easy to live in a world where your life is disrupted to the point of you feeling helpless. That is not fun. But what also isn't fun is people completely ignoring that for the benefit of trying to find a semblance of normalcy and potentially hurting not only other people, but hurting our prospect of actually being done with this shit. Um, and we're never actually going to be done with it until we find a vaccine that that is going to be the only thing that's going to help with this as with many flu pandemics, uh, in the past. Um, but we also need to fucking buck up, um, and understand that we have a part in this and just because you're sick of it doesn't mean it's going to go away. Right. And I think it's also important to note that just because like, it's not even just being sick of it or wanting to feel normal so you ignore this situation. It's also, this is the first time that people are faced with seeing science in action. Yeah. Typically, we're often given the final conclusion up front. Oh, and yeah. right now, we're being faced with something that scientists don't necessarily understand. So it's not, it's not the time to be like, well, they keep changing their minds, so I'm not going to believe in anything they say. It's like, well, no, new studies breed new results. And yep. those new results can contradict past conclusions. That's how science works. And it, there's not going to be a definitive answer until they've exhausted all, all, you know, ventures of discovery. Right. And then that's when they make their final conclusion. Right now, it's all like, hey, we're still studying it, but here's something that we learned and here's something that you can do. And exactly. I think I think people often find that their distrust comes from not having a 100% answer, but science doesn't always yield a 100% answer at all times. And we need to be doing what we can uh, to make the situation as easy as possible for scientists to find that final conclusion. Yep. Um, so now is not the time to think that because you took AP chemistry and AP biology in high school that you have all the answers. Um, it's about being considerate for your fellow man and doing what you can to try and uh, keep everything safe or as safe as possible while we get through this because yep. pandemics can last a while and they last even longer if we don't cooperate with what needs to be done. Yep. So. And keep our essential workers safe. Those are going to be even harder to replace if we just keep diminishing our resources. So you got to you gotta be mindful of something other than yourself. And I know in a time when you want self-preservance, perseverance, that's hard. That's hard. That's something that's very hard for humanity to do. But it is something we have to think of. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we have history and pop culture to look upon to kind of see maybe where those human faults can end in disaster. Yep. Um, and also where those, you know, human decent, like, human decency moments can actually yield in, like, success. So I think it's 
it's a difficult time right now, but you know, I hope you enjoyed our our take on uh what's been going on without directly talking about what's been going on and maybe it gives you a broader picture of what's happening in the world or maybe it just gives you a sight into the terrifying world that we live in um either way unlike you know unlike 1817 during one of the largest you know first pandemics of cholera we have we have information we have the internet we have medical supplies we have drugs we have uh sanitation we have a million different things like we have toilets everywhere we have fucking toilets we have toilets we have a lot of really important advances that could make this a lot quicker than our past human counterparts have ever experienced let's give it a little bit of a break let's let's do our part let's be the hero not of the zombie apocalypse but let's be the hero that doesn't cause the zombie apocalypse let's be that because as much yeah. fun as The Last of Us is, I it, it's not fun in reality. No. I'm not living through that. Uh-uh. No, I won't make it. No. No. I mean, I will, but I won't be happy about how I have to make it, so. Oh, no, I, I, don't, I don't have much faith in me surviving those situations in, in real life. <laughs> I have too much faith, and I'm a cocky motherfucker when it comes to any, any type of zombie apocalypse stuff. You want to be on my team, but if you're on my team, you want to know what I would do if you fuck up. Oh, so God. Just saying. Just saying. You can survive with me. You can survive with me until I tell you you can't survive anymore. Sorry. So, I'm that person. I'm sorry. I'm you. not at all. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for listening. And um, we super appreciate it. Whatever platform you are listening on, please be sure to give a follow, a subscription, and or a review. We would super appreciate all of the love and feedback that you can give. Um, in the meantime, please check us out. Uh, I stream on Twitch under Little Red, and on Twitch under Yebba Deba. You can also find me on on Twitter. And if you want any of these cool videos I watched about the corrupted blood stuff, let me know, and I can pass them to you. Hell yeah! Fucking great. Also, I'm on Twitter and TikTok. I recently made a uh, video about wearing a mask that made yeah. a lot of people angry. So, go check it out. People don't like being faced with their own ignorance. It's fine. Nah, it's okay. Nah. Um, but thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. So- Stay sleuthy. We love you. Bye-bye. Stay safe, too. Bye.